we, we might as well just say uh, uh, put out, you know, categorise a, a menu in a restaurant by how many uh, milligrams of sodium are, are in it. And welcome to episode 435 of Brews News Week, recorded on Thursday, the 14th of September, 2023. I'm Matt Kirkegaard, editor of Brews News, and joining me are my regular co-host Ian Watson and special guest star Paul Daly from the Australian Cicerone community. Welcome back, Ian, and uh, welcome to you, Paul. Thank you, Matt, and good afternoon, Ian. Hey, Paul. How are you going? Really well. I, I, I do um, apologise up front for our lack. It, it's, it's very much becoming a sausage fest here on uh, Brews News. I don't mean that. Unfortunately, uh, you know, uh, again, we've we've had two of the people that I would most like to have on as uh, co-hosts, as guests in uh, Bureau's Conversation this week, and it's very hard to you know, get them to back up. So uh, you, you just stuck with the three uh, boring white blokes, um, and I do apologise for that up front. Uh, Sabrina is on the way, and we'll be back next week. So we'll, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, not uh, mate, How are things going with the Australian Cicerone community? We have spoken to you about it. Actually, Paul, when I had you on on periods of conversation, got what five, six months ago now. Uh, end of January, I think it was. In that very seven hot, months, seven months very ago. Very hot Brisbane day up at uh, Revel, Revel Brewing. And that was just before the Cicerone uh, community launched. How's that all been going? Has there been a, a lot of buy-in from people? Yeah, I think it's a it's a slow burn. Um, there is sort of everything is done off the snip of an oily rag, for want of a better term. It is um, obviously purely a volunteer basis and when we can find the time to um, uh, you know, promote through social or, or produce the content that we're there to do, um, I find the time basically outside my regular full-time job and, and so does the rest of the team. But I think we've been slowly ticking over in terms of people discovering us um, and following us through um, the posts that we do through Instagram but also the main Part is the closed Facebook community because that's where we can uh, share items, just like the Brews News community, uh, to a sense, and we can share documents and and engage in stimulating conversation based around the service of beer and, and you know because the situ- the Cicerone can, um, program is based around the essential idea that the the most important part of a beer's life is when it is served to a consumer and everything we work towards in understanding and knowledge through the various levels comes to that point it is very much a, a demand side consumer side um, program just like the quartermaster sommeliers so it's been going good with um the main focus was in this first horizon for a sense is to give back to those in the beer community wanting to learn more about beer and, and service and how we get to that point of service the romanticism in the history and how we describe beer through consumer uh, facing, but also technical um, descriptions of beer too. So uh, we've hit up those monthly education sessions or into our, our third one coming up uh, in a few weeks' time. I, I love hearing you describe it. Again, just without any um, shame over, you know, um, fanboying uh, the, the, the way you say it. And I'd you know, invite him to, to, to weigh in on this because as brewers, we want 
to make the best, well, not, not we, but as brewers um, want to make the best beer that they can. One of my huge criticisms of the industry for a long time now has been, it's been novelty and, you know, inverted commas, innovation. And the industry has done nothing to celebrate the service of beer at all. And that's the thing that is genuinely going to get consumers in, make beer aspirational in the set, not in making it wanky or making it, you know, expensive or exclusive, but making it something that you aspire to having, you know, the celebration at the end of the day or the beautifully poured beer. And that was when I first met Ian, God, that must be 18 years ago now when I first, when you were working at the Spotted Cow and this was what you were talking about before beer with sparkles or, you know, things came in and all of the, you know, lactose IPAs. The thing that you talked about was service and knowledge and, you know, creating an experience for the consumer. So, and again, it's the first time hearing Paul say that, that I've really heard anyone enunciate that is so clearly since I first heard you talk about it. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Paul and I certainly seem to be singing from the same hymn book. Um, that's exactly right. It doesn't matter how good your beer is um, in the tank at the brewery. It matters how it is in the glass in front of the consumer and the experience that they can get from that. And that's from serving it. Um, that's from looking after it from the time it leaves the brewery to the time it makes the glass, serving it in a way that um, respects the beer um, and elevates it and gives a great consumer to uh, give a great experience to the consumer. And that doesn't matter whether you're drinking a um, rare beer from some tiny brewery or beer made by Trappist Monks. It doesn't matter whether it's a 4X gold down the Bowls Club. You should get that beer in the best possible way for that. And it's quite a disappointment to me to have a beer that's been loved and crafted by someone and then have it served in a... Uh, a you know, in a poor glass, uh, be that by the cleanliness of the state of the glass or the wrong glass, that beer, uh, you know, served with, with no no foam on it, uh, beer running down the sides of the glass, slopped across the counter to me by someone that really doesn't care about the, the, the product. And all of the things in, in being a beer service professional, the knowledge that goes in behind it is all about just coming down to that one moment of giving the, the consumer the best experience that they that they can. And that doesn't have to mean giving them a, a lecture about everything in, in that beer, um, even though the server might have that knowledge there, but they have that there uh, in case the consumer wishes to to know more and to help them give that consumer um, the best experience that they, they can. And it, it's something that even... Even though that that you know that was my job um, many years ago, but it's not now. But I still am deeply passionate and caring about it. And when I'm having a beer at home, I still go about it in the exact same way that I served a beer to you um, eighteen or nineteen years ago, Matt. There has been so much about society that has changed over the, the two decades that craft has been a thing in Australia. The two almost two and a half decades now um, that it's been a, a significant thing. You know, we, we've seen the rise of social media and particularly the, 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 the short attention span social media such as, and that's not derogatory, it's just the rapid fire social media um, of Instagram and TikTok um, that is just aesthetics over anything else. And I think that that's been a big part for beer in why uh, other drinks have become 
aspirational or desirable to showcase, you know, beautifully poured cocktails that look colourful in the glass, um, you know, are, are one thing. But I still think that a beautifully poured beer, even if it is in a pot glass, you know, I'd, I'd prefer it to be in something else, but a beautifully poured beer under, you know, a good, you know, centimetre or two of foam um, in a clean glass where it's just bright, um, is just one of the most beautiful drinks that, that, that I can think of um, because I, I can appreciate the skill involved in getting it there. Oh, ab- absolutely. And look, that has played a big part and changed a lot about beer over the last five years. Um, like Instagram's been around a lot more, but I think it's really influenced and beer has been for the last five, six years. And particularly with the rise of the hazy IPA, um, something that looked quite different and it's actually shaped that i think we've actually had a change in what a nipa is it's a it's a different beer to what it was five or six years ago and it's been um very much shaped by instagram uh, garrett oliver's uh written some um uh, uh, wonderful views on that that i'm i'm quite in line with but uh you know even more uh, traditional beers or other newer styles of beers can we can present them in a way and use social media in a way to really highlight that. Um, if you look at, I love good beer photography and beer photography is really, really dif- difficult. I'm not good at it at all. Um, my partner, Rocky, she's pretty good at it, but some people are really, really good at it. And there's a book, uh, one of Michael Jackson's books called Ultimate Beer. Uh, and if you've never uh, never read it, uh, do. Uh, first, you should read World Guide to Beer by Michael Jackson. It's essential. Um, that's the one, Matt. That's Max just pulled that for the for those listening at home. Matt's just pulled that book off his shelf. Um, both of those books. Uh, World Guide is right beside my bed at the moment, actually. Now, Ian, do you mean the World Guide to Beer or the New World Guide to Beer? Because I have both. Oh, either one. <laughs> um, but Ultimate Beer, uh, if you want an example of great beer photography, that is possibly the best book, I think, for it. I will still sit and pour over the photos in that book and about how delicious um, the beer looks in those and how much I lusted after and still lust after each of those glasses that's sitting there and it's not necessarily just that brand I want to drink but that particular glass of beer that I want to drink because they're all just so presented so friggin' beautifully in it and we can do that and um, things like the the Australian Cicero and community uh, uh, making steps in in show, showing that and we have to encourage that um, as the whole beer community in what great beer service can be and what that will do and how that will help lift our, our category. And I'm a, I have always been and still remain a firm firm believer in, in beer presentation. We probably should, uh, there's not a lot of news around, but we should probably after that, uh, <laughs> in, and we would, and the only reason I'm cutting off because it is a great conversation to have, but I know that we're going to touch on some of this when we get uh, down to the um, mailbag section. Um, as I said, not a huge amount uh, in terms of hard news this week, um, but one thing that we covered as announcements um, this week rather than news, but I think, as is often the case when you see a number of similar things happening at the same time, it does become news because it's obviously a trend, and that is uh, this week we've seen uh, Batch Brewing um, and also really the Boatman too inner city Sydney in in West uh, Sydney breweries um, that are both either 10 years old or coming up to 10 years old in the case of Willie the Boatman uh, rebranding um, and you know, investing a little bit in their rebrands and uh, um, I thought you know batch brewing uh, was an interesting one the way that they described it um, you know as a 10-year milestone 
um, and they've come together to form the local drinks collective, but they've still uh, wanted to, uh, for this pack packaging refresh, we set out to create something a bit more modern without losing the heart of the Batch brand. The Batch character was uh, central to this. We wanted to inject them with some personality and take them on an adventure across the core range packaging, ensuring it represented the quality of beer within and the diversity of the characters who drink Batch beer. Um, you know, again, interesting to see two older breweries feeling the need to um, update and modernise. What, what did you guys think? Paul? I, um, I'm starting to see a little bit of a trend here across, I guess, a lot of craft breweries just in terms of rebranding. Um, I think what that shows is, and I'm not a branding expert, I've always got to spend a lot of time with people at Line over the years and the talented brand teams um, there to see a little bit of the process from the outside looking in from a sense. But look, I, can, I think you can see from both of them, they're going to a, a very much a kaleidoscope of colours that really just interrupts. It looks like they're designed to interrupt a consumer on the path to purchase in obviously a market that is more crowded than ever. Um, I think what a lot of some of these brands I've seen, it's quite difficult to see the cut through of, of the brand itself, the master brand. So I can see particularly with Willie, it's done a great job in terms of bringing that to light a little bit. But what you can see is just that real kaleidoscope of colour, which we're probably familiar with from, from um, Cooper's as that real founder of calling out, you know, you've got the blue, the green, the red, the yellow, um, and that is a real interrupter and you're aware of it. And you see little creatures, they, they did the same thing and they're very predominantly, you've got the different colours of their cans. Now we've got these two breweries also going down that same path in terms of very bright greens, magenta, lemon yellows, blacks, teals and alike. And I think that when we see that in a fridge space, black's quite regressive and it disappears into a fridge, but having to see these pop out a little bit more with a strong, clear master brand, for me, it is, it's a, it, it's a necessary step in trying to make sure that these some of these breweries are doing everything they can to make sure that their brand pops from what can be a cool, a quite a dark, cool room, but even pops in cartons on the floor that they're going to interrupt that customer on the path of purchase to make sure that these these guys don't get lost in what is a very oversaturated market with breweries at the moment and less and less consumers choosing to spend money on alcohol um, due to economic the economic climate. So I think it's a good positive way and. I hope that they see a lift of sales from it. Yeah, definitely. I hope they they see a lift of sales, and it is something that um, every business needs to to do every once in a while is have a a brand refresh. Uh, maybe look at the strong points that have been working on your branding, and and try to have some pie over. Obviously, if you can from there, um, but sometimes it's a complete refresh over. Uh, but it shows that you're working on your 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 product. Is probably the product in the can is is continually. Um, evolving uh, uh every brewer is always looking at their beers and seeing how they can uh, make them better and i think in the, in, in the branding it's just natural that you've, you've always got to be looking um and obviously you can't change that uh do your little tweaks every batches as you potentially can with with the product in the can but um after x amount of period which is something more for branding and marketing people to to say about when you need and what signs you have to be uh, looking for that's time for a little bit of a refresh. Um, There's something that's just a natural part of, of, of any business in this industry is you do have to, to refresh from, from time to time. 
the thing that um, really sticks out for me is again, you know, as as Paul said, a strong master brand for both of them, where they're clearly identifiable as part of a, a suite of products. I was struck by uh, Batch, you know, has gone the way that a lot of other breweries I've seen has, um, and Willie's hasn't done the same, is really clearly identifying the style um, while still keeping, and, and this was something that we saw from um, Squires probably a decade ago, Paul, um, you know, they, they gave them each a, a name, you know, um, uh, 150 lashes and things like that but unless you know the beer Chanter, lashes doesn't... Mm. yeah but and, and it's, it was all about the, the storytelling but it doesn't tell you anything about the beer you know whether it's a porter or a pilsner or, or, or whatever and so half the time i didn't know what i could remember myself what the beers were whereas with the um batch You've got, they still have Trippy Hippie and they've got Passion the Magic Dragon and I've got the um, Elsie, which are names that people know. They have changed Marrickville, um, the, the Pale Ale to Marrickville original. But very strongly on the cans, you've got West Coast IPA, Passion Fruit and Dragon Fruit Sour, Pale Ale and Milk Stout. Um, so you can see very clearly that it's a batch beer, but then also the style of beer, um, which I actually think is increasingly important for consumers. Yeah, I agree. I think that for me, the number one thing, even for me, and I, I find I'm a bit of a, like to think I'm a savvy beer buyer. Um, anything that makes it the most easiest way to purchase a beer better, if I have to go and look in and really get confused by names or understanding if it's a particular style, and I, I shop for styles a lot, my biggest bugbear is, is I know brands like a core block in a fridge where you've got your whole family and they, they lock it out. That's very good for a brand. But for mm -hmm. me, who likes to shop by style, I could have a six bay fridge and be looking for a West Coast IPA at one end and a West Coast IPA at the other end because I don't know where they all are. Yeah. It, it, it confuses me and it becomes quite overwhelming for myself. But for someone who might be new to beer and, and, and just entering through a gateway beer like uh, James Squire or Matilda Bay, um, they would become quite overwhelmed. So anything that can really spell out what this beer is in the most simplest terms, particularly what it might mean for them when they drink it or when they pour it into a glass, I think the better. And if it's quite a nice, I like if it's nice and simple, and it doesn't overwhelm me or confuse me where I just go, I'm just going to go back to drinking my James Squire or I'm going to go back to drinking my Four Pines or, or, or like because they're familiar and I know what I'm getting. If yeah. we can make it really easy, particularly for because there are so many variants of beers out there at the moment, I think they're better for the consumer and better for our category. So what they've done there is great. I still think that Rogue, Little Legend, all those things with Willie the Boatman, they're fantastic because I think storytelling is so important and obviously those names, I'm not aware what they mean to Willie, but they're important for um, creating a connection to those brands too, which I think um, is wonderful because, again, that separates itself. But if it is done in the way that I'm picking up and I'm not really quite sure what it is, well, there's probably too, there's so many other competitors out there who are doing a job probably communicating better to a new consumer than you and there's probably more of an inclination than pick up that because it just takes any doubt out of their head. So I think that's great what they've done there with purely calling it out and hopefully the consumer with the rest of us in the industry do enough to make sure they know what a passion fruit and dragon fruit sour is and uh, 
and milk stout is, and that's the other part of the, of the battle, all right? No, I, I think Paul's done with that. And it's interesting you brought up the James Squire. Remember when they made that change, Joe? That was a confusing time for myself as someone who knew that Vera's is the Amber Ale or Ford, um, et cetera. But it did appear from um, something outside the organisation that they had a bit of an uptake and upswing with many of those products when they gave them names. And I think having both a name and an identifying style on the label are very good for the style, exactly as Paul said. So that uh, I think, how did you term it, Matt, once? Having a style is like an un unspoken contract between the, the producer and the consumer as to what their expectations might be of what's in it. That wasn't me. That was me, you know, that, that was me paraphrasing Stephen Beaumont, um, you know, talking about the, you know, while styles should never be everything, they should tell the consumer, you know, what what they're ordering. So it's a, it's a, it's a contract between the brewer and the consumer to help the consumer decide what, you know, know what it is that they're buying. Right. Yeah. So when you've got that on there, that that um, uh, the consumer's got a form of direction, and then the name itself, uh, and that gives it the chance for the brewery to tell their own little story around that product, and also it gives them a chance to differentiate. Um, got multiple beers of that same style so particularly something like nowadays with with an ipa of all forms of ipas uh it's very conceivable that um your, your brewery might have two three or more ipas and so just calling it ipa while that's important to have on there so that people have a little bit of an expectation as to what they're getting in the can uh differentiating it with a name between your own products is another thing and it also is a way to get, make your product really uh potentially memorable because it might have a catchy name that really resonates with with people and they might go xyz ipa that that really that name just really works with me and so it, it sticks into people's minds uh or reinforces your brewery into people's people's minds as well i was um i was working for the blue tongue brewery when james squire did that relaunch i remember seeing it at a tasting in newcastle and um myself i'm trying to work out why it was done um, then being inside the organisation, it, it sort of became, you started referring to them by the, the chancer, four wives or jack of spades. Um, you must have been the only people. <laughs> that we were, well, I think it's, it's, it's fascinating the, um, how many people actually thought James Squire 150 Lashes was just called 50 Lashes. 50 Lashes, yeah. Or Orchard Pete Crush. used to say that all the time. Yeah, Orchard Crush, the cider was called Orchid Crush. Um, <laughs> It's, I think, it's, it's a funny one. It, it does become a part of, of the repertoire. They, it was still called out, but I still think, yeah, absolutely. Style is really important, particularly if, as a category, we want to compete outside of mainstream lager, light lager, with other categories to be new, interesting, tasteful, um, flavorful all these things we need to communicate with about the styles and what they mean and, and the roles that different styles can play within a social occasion or, you know, or, or in food with occasion, in food occasions and alike. So I think that when you're shopping, if we want to educate a customer, educate a consumer about picking up the right ear for the right occasion, if we want to continue to battle and get into those areas, even just having beer with meals, we need to be clear about what the beer is. And then make sure that that then, like Ian said before, when we're talking about the service of beer is served in the correct glassware, served in clean glassware. Um, and we'll talk about it, I think, coming up, talking about 
the presentation of the particles within the beer that they're looked after well. So there's a lot going on here and it will add to the tapestry of making sure that we get a lot of things right to make sure that we get growth in the, in the medium to long term. There's uh, a, a bit of a teaser for what's coming up, but before we move, move on, something that you uh, raised, Paul, was what I think is one of the great debates about beer retail and Brewers love to have their brands presented as a block, but often retailers like to have things done by style in the way that you know wine would be. So if you want a West Coast IPA or if you want a stout, um, you can go and look at all of the stouts. What do you think is the best way to do it, Ian? You know, should you know, to, to me it makes sense that a retailer would want to break up the range and put beers of a similar style together on the shelf. Yeah, um, so I've got a bit of experience with this, but my experience with this is um, not time relevant. So going back quite a while now, things may have changed and there is quite a good reason I'll get to you for why they may have changed. But um, I notice now more and more will put them into styles. Um, and as a brewer and someone trying to sell, yeah, we, as Paul mentioned before, naturally having a block out of your product is, re is really, really good. Um, can you get that in the right fridge? Um, it, it really works. Uh, but years ago when I was um, uh, working in the retail side, uh, we initially had ours categorised slightly differently and, and more by country and so forth. And then I actually swapped over and put them all by styles. And we had, um, it, it, it actually brought us problems. So people were spending longer in front of the fridge and then buying less. And we actually had a noticeable, quite quickly, we noticed a downshift in our volume that we were putting out. Because then I made the discovery that at that period in time, um, people were buying first by a country, then by region, then by brewery, then by style. So the people are coming in, I like Belgian beer, where's your Belgian beer? Or well, I hear that beer from Victoria is really good. And then they'll go, here, beer from Victoria is really good. I really like Bridge Road. And then they'll go, oh, a pale ale. I like pale ales. And then buying buying it. And we, we found in our store that that was how things were. However, the beer knowledge base of the um, general public has changed a lot since then. And um, people's, I think we do have, we're on our way to a more knowledgeable consumer. Um, and so people probably are buying by style. I certainly buy by style, but at that period in time, that was what I what I noticed. So I'd be really interested to see, and I'd, I'd need someone to do an experiment, a shop that was willing to do an experiment for me and probably take a hit in sales or a, a growth in sales to do that change around over several weeks to see how it worked now. Because certainly 20 years ago is different to, to now, but 20 years ago, that's what, I, that's what I noticed. And so I was putting it by country, region, brewery, and that's what worked for us. Paul, your, thought, your thoughts on that now? Yeah, I think there's a balance between the two. I find that the major change, so Endeavour, uh, Dan's and BWS, you'll find that when you go into those, they'll have it categorised by styles, but broad styles, pale ales, I think they might even have a golden ale category still, and then darker styles of beer too. And then international is quite clear as set aside as separate to that as, as international. And then we have domestic and then they have premium. So they break general craft into styles, but the other main categories international premium, domestic premium, um, and, and international in terms of your Belgian beers, but also say like Shepherd's Name and those sort of British styles, they're broken up. Whereas I find that your independent bottle shops, um, which might be under a banner, um, they are generally, they like to call block a lot, but it changes. And I don't think there's any one rule. 
I think we might be in the middle of a we're in we're, we're pulled by two polars pol, polars two pulled by two two opposing forces of dual knowledge <laughs> and education. I want to say that where I think there's a, there's a group of people who would go we should treat beer like wine in terms of we we categorize it by style and possible region. Um, and we believe that the consumer should be savvy. And I think it's almost like a try for we would, I project myself and I manifest that one day that we'll have a consumer that is savvy enough to shop for their Shiraz. I'll shop there for pale ale, like they shop for their Shiraz. Not a lot of times we're not there. And I don't know how soon we will get there on a mass scale, but we're all trying. Whereas some will just go to pure core block, which I think there's benefits to do based on geographical region and the consumer in that specific area. Um, but I think we have, yeah, we have different areas of how we, we do. I've even heard of um, some chains or channels looking to categorize beer by IBU. So seeing IBU as a, as a, um, as an intensity of beer to help consumers under the guise that anything from zero to 10 versus 10 to 20 will be, help a consumer find a way through beer that'll be better for them which i'm not particularly sold on but there's even that way of looking at things that people are talking about too i've heard over the past couple of years yeah i, I would have my doubts about mm. categorizing it in that way um particularly with 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 well with it anyway along that line particularly yeah. like with bu's because uh a 30 30- Beer is not a 30 bu beer you can have two different beers at 30 bu that have quite a different intensity of flavor um, I, I, I don't actually don't like using VUs to the public because um, given this units are only of use to to the individual brewer that's making the beer in their own brewery to use that as a reference point back across to um, their audience. Uh, it, it, it really, really doesn't work in the same. You know, you could have a Imperial South that's 100, you know, theoretically 100 BU and um, same intensity of bitterness or flavor profile as a, as a day with half that. A forty, it, it doesn't take BU's don't doesn't take into account perceived bitterness, how it feels on the mouth, or your palate, the amount of t- attenuation of the beer. It's the same then as pH. Uh, recent times, with the mm-hmm. um, a focus on sour ales, sour beers, people have you know talking about the pH of of a beer, and you can have that's it, it's not a good way of measuring sourness in in beer titratable acidity is is the better way to redo it but even that's not great um you know i've had beers that are um 3.1 which is quite acidic but don't taste as acidic as beers that have a high you know much 3.6 7 um there are so many other factors that um that that come come into it but there was a little bit of a thing over the last few years where people were chasing um that low ph just the same as in the you know 15 years ago people were chasing high bu's it was a um you know a way of thumping their, their chest as to what they were capable of of drinking um but it's it's not i don't think it's the way we should look at beer and it's not the way we should we should categorize it i'd yeah i'd, I'd be interested to see if, if people did categorize it that way how how people reacted to it but i don't think it would be a forward me- good forward message for us to be to be using that as a way to categorize um categorize beer um we, we might as well just say uh, uh put out you know categorize a, a menu in a restaurant by how many uh, milligrams of sodium are, are in it yeah 
So, but look, certainly, uh, I'd be really interested in hearing our listeners' thoughts. I know a lot of our listeners do work in trade, um, and I'd love to hear what their experiences are with how consumers buy versus style or buy uh, brewery. And there's a link in the show notes to speak pipe where you can actually leave a 90 second comment that we can play next week or you can uh we can start discussing it in the facebook group or just even email um produce at bruisenews.com.au and that introduces a new sponsor to the podcast uh that i'll be introducing a little bit later but uh beer fans is coming on as sponsor of our mailbag Actually, another thing uh, we probably should mention in into categorising beer in a retail shelf is it probably does another variant that we should have shop to shop is it dependent on the actual shop itself, the customers of that store, and quite importantly, the staff and how the staff like to interact or, or are able to interact depending on the layout of the store with the consumers and what suits them best for, for selling. Um, so what might work in one store might not work as good in another store depending on the, the, the customer base that you have um the staff that you have and how they are able to sell and interact with the with the consumers depending on the layout of that store Mm, that's very true that's right i think i mentioned that in terms of what works for one store where it could be quite a you know if you have a store that's located in marrickville the golden triangle of breweries in sydney versus a store that's situated in dubbo your layout could be very much influenced by the de- social demographics and knowledge of what people are looking for for beer in those areas. So your store will be presented in a way that serves that your customers better in that regard, as opposed to a one way to work for every single region across Australia. But just before we move off the topic of labels and standing out on the shelf, you know, the, the best way to do that, I think, is to call the team at Rallings Label Stickers and Packaging because they can really make you stand out on the shelf. Uh, by providing a complete range of packaging, packaging solutions. Uh, as you know, they can supply can or bottle labels, shrink sleeves for cans, supply to you ready to fill, cartons, either printed or plain, tap decals, coasters, and four-pack barcodes, and much, much, much more. They are your one-stop shop for all of your brewing, labeling, and packaging needs. Give Brad and Paul a call on 1300-852-235. That's 1300-852-235 to discuss your options or email sales at Rallings Print com.au and i wonder if either of the two uh, businesses that rebranded use rallings i should uh, find out no doubt brad will be giving me a call tomorrow morning as he listens to this podcast so uh yeah um now one of the things that ian talked about was ibus which led me to an interesting story that i read uh in let's see it was beerandbrewing.com that's the american beer and brewing not the australian uh, beer and brewing and it was an interesting article looking at the bitter, bitterness problem. Um, and it starts, I'll read out the first couple of paragraphs in full, because whilst he goes on to talk about bitterness um, and the evolution of beer, I just thought it was actually a really interesting summary of the, of, of the way that beer has gone from the early 2000s when we had the IBU wars to now... Um, you know, the word juicy was never actually used um, and came to be used. But this article starts by saying IPAs have gotten soft. Whether that's a good thing depends on your taste or if you're running a brewery, whether that softness sells. At the same time, IPAs have gotten harsh in seemingly new ways. Granted, when you have a really great hazy IPA, bright, juicy and smooth without the cloy, you get what it's all about. But how many great ones are there, really, compared to the 
those that kick your tongue in the end with some astringent rubbery hop bite. Sorry for painting with a broad brush among 10,000 breweries plus in North America, there are always exceptions. And here at this magazine, we're lucky to taste some of the very best that exist. Yet it shouldn't take a ream of quantitative data to convince you that bitterness has changed. All we need to do is observe the ongoing popularity of hazy IPAs and see that even many so-called West IPA style IPAs are soft in profile, lacking crispness and sharp edges. Many taste like hazies without the haze. We can see it in recipes we've published over the past nine years, and we hear it from brewers on the podcast. Fewer IBUs, little to no hops in the kettle, more hops in the whirlpool, and many more in the tank. It's no wonder that Pilsners and cold IPAs are both brewer-driven trends. We're looking for reliable, consistent bitterness anywhere we can get it. Look, I'm, I'm not even going to my own observations. I'm really keen to hear you both, because there is so much just in four paragraphs of that article. Yeah, um... It's it's quite on. Look, there is a general trend as we've um, looking for more aroma in uh, hop aroma in beers over the years, and actually we've actually had a change in hop processing over the last decade or so as well. That's helped with that a lot. Um, there's also been you know a general push by the industry um, to get rid, it seems, of of bitterness in beer, seemingly thinking that consumers want sweet product, which I, I would deny. Um, not all beer has to be bitter, but, um, that is a hallmark of many styles of beer and it's something that should be embraced in those. And then in the last five, six years, uh, with the rise of the New England IPA and the hazy IPAs, um, that push for lowering of bitterness and it's made its way across to, um, other IPAs as well, West Coast IPAs. You know, there are many, not all, but certainly many, that the bitterness level in them, the way that bitterness presents itself is certainly not in line with how I think um, that style should be. Now, from my own personal experience, uh, a few years ago, brewery I was working at, um, we had a, a, an IPA that was quite popular and we made a limited edition version of that that was a bigger version um, that sold really well. And I was out um, at an event one night and a Brisbane beer lover come up to me and said, oh, dude, I loved beer XYZ. Uh, and I was like, oh, thank you. And he said, oh, yeah, it was my West Coast IPA, best West Coast IPA of this year. And I was like, oh, no, man, thank you, but that's not a West Coast IPA. Um, and what, what do you mean? Well, that beer is only 30 BU. It really is not bitter enough. It doesn't have the right body. It's um, certainly not the right grain bill. That's not a West Coast IPA. And it got me thinking that, we are losing potentially what West Coast IPA is. Uh, and we do have to uh, have some respect. Styles can start to evolve and change, but they should not go through um, totally, what's the word I'm looking for? Dramatic, quick um, shifts. So I then went actually and spoke to my boss at the time and, you know, put it across. We started on a, a, a project of making real West Coast IPAs. And we went through several iterations and then the long story short, we, we, we got on something we were really, really happy with and we're winning gold for it um, and making IPAs that really truly fitted that bill to show what it should be. Like there's nothing against style evolution. We should have that. We should have new styles evolving, but we should also remember part of the origins of styles and what they were and have some reference point to them. We can have certain modernizations in things. doesn't mean we need to be making always a West Coast IPA, how um, a West Coast IPA was made in 2003, always using the same hops. We can we can have some modernization of flavors, but there are core elements to them that should be. Now, an IPA in general is a really hoppy beer, and that can be without with minor bitterness too, like, like we're seeing in many IPAs now. 
but we shouldn't be scared of bitterness and we shouldn't be um, bringing the bitterness level down in styles that evolved around that and, in my opinion, really do depend on that. Things like West Coast IPAs, things like, like Pilsners. Um, am I ranting? Yeah, but it's great. That's what we're here for. <laughs> I, I could go on a rant on IPA a lot, I think, and um, because I think it is probably... I, bastardized is a swear word on here but they're probably one of the most bastardized styles really out there in terms of what people call an ipa versus what should really be called an ipa i think um starting with what ian said i love a bit of beer i think beer should be bitter i think it's what differentiates us from going out there and producing an rtd Um, but some of these beers even ipas are basically RTDs, but that is a fermented beverage version of instead of a hard liquor product of an RTD. I understand that, you know, we got to go where the consumer wants. Um, and if the consumer wants X and they, we can give them that, but we've got to draw the line somewhere. Like I said, otherwise we just become RTDs. A good example of, of what the articles describe in, in, in I guess this is from my observation experience is when you know, even New Belgium, which has the biggest family, the, the, the Voodoo Ranger brand of New Belgium is the biggest IPA brand in the United States. Um, and they're actually the biggest seller of those is their 9% double IPA, which is incredible. But there's, there's tax reasons why that's probably achievable in the United States. But they've unashamedly changed their recipe from over the last oh, maybe 10 years. I don't know how long it's been out. I forget now. But they've constantly changed, I guess, the, the the how they've added hops throughout the process of making that beer and they've changed the recipe a few times to adjust to the consumer's demands of what they want from an IPA. So Voodoo Ranger of 10 years ago is, is a different beer and you, we obviously hear a lot in Australia that people rally against and get quite upset when they're perceived, that brand, breweries perceived to change a recipe, but they've unashamedly done that. And what they've done in that is go all to late edition hops um, up, um, slightly tweak the body of the beer in terms of the malt bill to actually go to lighter body, showcase the hops more, but everything's um, all just a, near all aroma. And there's very little early boil hops for, to reduce that bitterness quite a lot because that's what the consumers wanted and that's what's driven them to be the biggest IPA family in the United States, that drinkability. Whereas, you know, you've got the converse side of that thing and you get a fresh stone IPA, not the terribly stale ones that we've, you've spoken about before on here, Matt, but a, a fresh stone IPA, um, I had one recently in the States. It is bracingly bitter. It actually almost shocked me how bitter this beer was because it's, you, it's just unheard of that you'd have a beer like that. We're not used I, to it anymore. And, and no, yeah. exactly. My palate's quite changed a lot because I can't for the life of me find a beer like that in Australia anymore. Um, and it's, it's absolutely mind blowing. I think that, you know, we should still, I hope that we should still produce beers like that. I think the consumer does still demand it. I mean, we've got three, three white dudes here who quite would, would probably buy those beers off the shelf quite a bit. But, um, I agree that we tell ourselves that a consumer wants low bitterness, sweet, flavorful, but still sweet. Um, I'm not quite sure because you know I think that people, when you look at other categories, you know, cocktails, Negroni is a perfect example. There's lots of bitter cocktails 
out there that are quite popular and have a very good strong following. And if you're into the spirits world and you go out, a lot of the people within those categories, within those industries, go for bitter. Um, you look at the, the food revolutions of food shows. Those food shows aren't all about macarons and sweets. They're about robust, interesting, spicy, bitter, rich foods that are savory. Um, so I think that people's palates do want these things out of beer, but like for, for this one, we haven't gone that way. And when I talk about a bit of the bastardization of IPA is that we've even gone to one point of IPA that we've, we've gone well beyond just even let's low, let's go all flavor. Let's go all, um, you know, pr during fermentation and post fermentation hop additions to the point where, we're calling beers IPAs that are literally just could be just Baileys and milk. And we've actually confused consumers even more of what an IPA could be. So if you pick up a bitter IPA, a lot of people now probably wouldn't get, no, and it's traditional in the sense it would say. But that's, again, it, it's, it's almost the layering of consumer buzzwords. You know, IPAs were what craft beer was 10 years ago. And so when, people started playing with hops differently. IPA seemed appropriate for, for these, even though it didn't have the IPA bitterness anymore. Um, and then hazy became the word. So, and, you know, and so we've layered all of these styles to create something that is vastly different from anything an IPA was just because it, and it, I agree with you between particularly once we start adding lactose and no bitterness to the fruit, um, they are starting to become cocktail-ish rather than, you know, sweet, um, you know, sex on the beach style cocktail-ish um, beers rather than beers because they're chasing a, a, a palate. It, it's up to people to say whether that's right or wrong, but I agree with the, the, the point that you're making that they're starting to look more like other categories rather than beer. That's probably one of the aspects that could be confusing to someone when we go back to that idea of standing in front of a fridge and trying to work out what you want to buy. Um, it can be a confusing aspect of that, which if we're going to help people get into beer and stay within the category, we're going to make things easy for them too. Yeah, we have to be sometimes careful too if we think we're giving the consumers what they want because sometimes a consumer, and this is all of us as consumers, don't really know what we want and we can be confused as to think what we want. Uh, and we can chase, people can look at like a big uh, fruity sweet aromatics from, from hops and think that people then want sweet beer. Uh, but sweet beer, a beer has to be ultimately drinkable and it has to have balance. And for a large number of beer styles, certainly not all, bitterness is part of that balance that makes a beer drinkable all the way to the end of the glass and not just um, interesting in your mouth for the first sip. And it has to have that structure and that can be from bitterness, can be acidity, can be um, uh, uh, roastiness, tannins. And um, yeah, we've got to remember that Sometimes what people want is not necessarily what's best for them. I'm not going to weigh into whether it's good or bad. All I know is that we don't need 600 breweries all making the same thing. Um, yeah, again, I was going to say, Paul, you do have a school pickup uh, to do, so we'll just whistle through the next two. First of them is yours, uh, Brewery of the Week, um, and Brewery of the Week is brought to you by Bluestone Yeast, who can supply pitches of yeast from one litre to 100 litres at greater than 2 billion cells per litre. Per milliliter, not litre. Um, whether or not you are after a one-off pitch or you're looking for weekly, fortnightly or monthly deliveries of yeast, Bluestone Yeast has got you covered. You can reach out to them at info at bluestoneyeast.com.au or call our good friend Derek on 03 8518 3172 and talk all things yeast. 
And Paul, uh, now I, I threw it to you as our special guest to name the brewery of the week. And uh, once again, I'm feeling rather validated because your choice is a previous choice of mine. Is it? That's exciting. Well, my brewery of the week is White Bay Brewing in on the Balmain Roselle Peninsula um, in Sydney. And the reason why I chose them is because a couple of sorry, a couple of reasons. Um, one, I have very much been uh, a fan of their beers since they first launched with a couple. I think a lager and, and their pale ale. Um, I thought their pale ale presented beautifully in the glass. But particularly, I popped in there recently and saw my friend Liam Pereira, um, a certified Cicerone and the proctor, but also a proctor in Sydney for the exams, but also a former general manager of um, Sydney Beer Week. Um, mm-hmm. He was at Batch, so he's kind of like a, his, his very own, and he was on Beer as a Conversation recently, so he's almost his very own uh, Brunjus bingo card this week. He, he has got a passion and personality that reminds me a lot of Miro Bellini. I actually call him the Sydney Miro. Uh, Very much. A little bit inside the but what they uh, they produce a couple of beautiful Czech style pilsners. So they've got a lovely golden style Czech pilsner, but also a um, a Czech style dark lager as well, which they pour both uh, through Luka taps, um, traditional Czech style draft taps um, through the side pour, which is um, actual the logo for the uh, the Cicero community here in Australia, but. What I love about that is is we start to see a lot of people getting into beautiful pale golden lagers, um, traditional style from that Central European area, but being poured in a traditional way into a nice side, um, uh, sort of handled uh, dimple mug um, through the different various ways you can pour those. I think is just a beautiful way to showcase beer, um, and that's and I think it's probably one of the best. There's a couple other very good ones, but one of the best Czech style pilsners produced outside of. Um, Central Europe altogether. So they get my big thumbs up as a massive well done and it's a great brewery to go visit. So if anyone's ever around the Balmain Peninsula, head in there and say hi to Liam. Great addition to their hospitality team. Definitely. And, uh, well, yeah, again, so uh, twice winners, one joining one of our uh, rare brands of uh, you know, multiple winners. Um, so Maybe thank you for send, that. They might send us some free check pills in now for that. Uh, <laughs> <plug>. <laughs> Now, moving on, we do need to do mailbag because, as I highlighted in the show, we've got a sponsor for the mailbag this week. God, you'd think that we were making money or something. I'm just keeping the lights on. Um, but the mailbag is brought to us by the this week by our good friends at Beer Fans. Beer Fans creates new fans for your brand. Start selling outside of the same pool of consumers and increase your size of pie by increasing the size of the pie. It's free to feature your beer and merch on the website with beer fans being rewarded only once a new fan is secured for your brand. If you want to put your brand in front of more fans, reach out to them via email at join at beerfans.shop. That's join at beerfans.shop or click on the link in the show notes to start your seven minute onboarding process. Uh, and there's a link in the show notes, as we said. Um, we thank beer fans for joining. Um, and if you would like to join the mailbag this week it comes to us through the radio brews news facebook group that you can join i'm going to mix up the um uh password just we've been saying soapbox for a while but now uh, i'm going to say that the password for the next little while is going to be cicerone in honor of you paul daly so if you want to join the radio brews news group say cicerone 
Um, the Change of Spritzer, a regular um, commenter and contributor to the Facebook group, um, posted a very interesting one. Um, and I, I'm assuming that this is a reference to his experience, even though it's written in the third person. Imagine you're a great Northern drinker, but you want to give this craft beer thing a go. You head into your Uncle Dan's and go to the pale ale section because your sister's inner city boyfriend drinks pale ales. And you see a beer with an award on it, so you grab one and take it home to try, along with a slab of Great Northern on special. You pour the craft beer into a glass because your sister's boyfriend always drinks out of a glass. And this is where I'm presuming that he's referring to himself. And this is what you find. And the photo, if you go to the uh, Facebook group, is uh, a fairly turgid. It's a hazy at some point, but then it's got um, great lumps of, as we know, a yeast in it that have uh, congealed and set down the bottom. And uh, having found that, the question is, do you think you'd ever tip it out and grab a super crisp out of the 30 pack and never try this craft beer shit again? Um, now, I have to agree with Shane um, that that's a subpar experience. Um, and, you know, as I commented, actually, I'll contrast that with um, uh, one of our other great listeners, Pedro Bevelaca de Luca, um, who, another previous guest on Bureau's Conversation, uh, he rather firmly says that's just yeast, the same yeast that made the alcohol that you enjoy in your beer. Not only does it Im does it impact negative flavours in your beer, considering it's in reasonable amounts, it's a really good source of vitamin B. The fact that you have yeast on the bottom of your can bottle means the beer that you're drinking hasn't been filtered or very prob probably pasteurised, which means you're likely to be drinking it as fresh as it could be. But if you prefer to drink a mass-produced pro uh, adjunct and conservative full product that has no taste, go for it. Um, my only comment was, if the beer is meant to look like that, that's fine. But I'm pretty sure it's not meant to look like that. I'm pretty sure it's not looking like that consistently. And I'm pretty sure the consumer wouldn't expect it to be like that. And so, um, you know, even Cooper's, which revels in the fact that it has yeast in its beer, um, does a lot to educate its consumers about how a beer is meant to be. But uh, I'm going to hand over to, to you two, given that we've had a discussion about the consumer experience. I think you, you point on a couple of things that is right there. I think it's fine, obviously, either if it's been very coarsely filtered or it's gone through a secondary conditioning. I think it's absolutely fine for beer to have yeast um, in suspension in the bottle. I think we look at some very popular ones around the country, two ones that come to mind, Cooper's, but also Little Creatures Pale Ale. They're both conditioned in their packaging, so they will have that yeast settle at the moment. Cooper's is, does a very good job at always constantly reminding people that it is a ritual. It's a ritual like you pour a Guinness. It's a ritual with Cooper's that you roll the bottle, you roll the can, always to rouse that yeast to make sure that it's distributed finely throughout the beer itself. You, you have obviously bad experience of that, particularly with the keg product, but um, especially I think we've all had the experiences when you might get a Cooper's keg that hasn't been rolled or stored inverted and you'd get a lot of sludge at, at one part of it where it's a very turb or very you know, hazy or i should say sludgy kind of beer where and then the rest of the the glass you might get a very bright beer because it hasn't been dis distributed for that if we are going going to do that with a lot of other beers we just have to find a way to communicate that but that's just very difficult on a mass scale for a lot of other breweries to be able to talk to a consumer widely and say this beer has not been filtered, therefore the particles within that beer will actually settle into the bottom. So you should um, 
so you should roll it. Belgian beers particularly, you know, a lot of conditioned beers, you know, Weizen beers, particularly also those the Belgian um, ones that are bottle conditioned. What they do and what we learn is everything's taught, you know, even a lambic, for example, there's a reason why you've got a lambic basket in traditional um, um, service of Belgian beers. And that is to make, you know, you're, what you're taught is to basically to um, always store it upright to make sure that that yeast settles in the bottom, but you don't serve the bottom of the beer. You actually, you're meant to make sure you remove the, the cork or you remove the cap and you're very careful not to rouse the yeast and make sure that you pour it very well. So for me, this is this is fine to have beers that have, this is a product of, an, of a natural brewing process. It's got nothing to do with the, um, the pasteurization or anything that go down in the comments below. But we've just got to make sure that if, from an, I guess an industry-wide perspective, we've got to make sure we're appropriately telling people how to pour a beer. Now, the only way we've been taught about pouring beers with yeast is the Cooper's way of rolling it, um, but that's not gotten out to everybody else. And so my way would be that they always err on the side of caution that if it is a hazy beer, I would be leaving that little bit in the bottom to make sure you don't have these situations Otherwise, the only way to get rid of this is basically a filter or a centrifuge to really knock it all out of there. Yeah. Look, there is different styles of beer, as we all know, that are meant to be served in different ways and with different levels of yeast in them. You know, yeah, have bisons and head beers um, different to, um, like if we have Dufel, Belgian beer, which is bottle conditioned, but is meant to be served poured bright, as, as you said. Uh, me personally, actually, Cooper Sparkling Hour is probably the single brand of beer I drink the most of. Um, we, we absolutely love it and I, I drink that. We drink it from 750ml bottles and I drink it bright and leave the um, sediment behind and that's my personal taste um, in, in that particular beer. Um, a, a fine haze of yeast through a beer is different to globules and lumps. In particular case, I think that's a process issue there, which can be rectified, as you say, by centrifuge by filter or by actual you know uh, there's certainly a lot of breweries out there that put out very bright products without a filter in sight um, there's other ways of doing that um, but that's certainly a little bit unattractive but it is uh, a probably a process issue for that particular brewery and then b as you are you are 100 in agreement with you saying paul it's communication and education um, issue for how we go about presenting beer but I'll take that photo, and if I can get to it this week, if I think to, because I don't jump on Facebook a lot, I'll I'll raise the bar on that one. I'll put a little short video um, up that we took last year. So Rocky bought a beer home from a brewery, and um, it made me embarrassed to be a brewer. Uh, I won't, you, the brand's not identifiable in this video, but it's me tipping the remainder of it into the sink, and you can see the sludge that came out. Um, and if we are going to... Um, elevate our industry and make ourselves as good as possible. We as brewers, and I say this as me as a brewer, um, we have to make sure that we're doing our best with quality control to make sure these things don't happen. Sometimes they do, and then we have the Mercedes principle of when a mistake happens, it's how we rectify it, um, but we have to be doing our best to make sure that we're putting um, our best best product out there. And again, um, we're very conscious of time, but I, I think you both make very good points, and I don't want to put words in Shane's mouth, but I think his point was if this is at a time when we want to be growing the pool for, for beer, if this is the first experience that a great northern drinker has, and whatever you say about uh, great northern, 
you can say, but it is a consistently, you know, it is a beer that you always know what you're going to get. And if this is your first experience um, with a craft beer, it's uh, it, it's not a pleasant one. It was was the uh, point that I took away from it. Oh, absolutely, and that's why I think the difference between um, a fine haze, like I think even a, a, a great northern drinker, if it's not what they're used to, might understand because they've seen it before. A fine haze um, through a beer when it's actual lumps and bumps um, and chunks through there, yes, that could be very off-putting to to someone, and I, I it's very off-putting to me too, um, as someone who thinks that I'm an experienced beer drinker. Anyway, we thank uh, Shane for, for weighing in for the mailbag, and uh, we particularly thank beer fans for sponsoring the mailbag segment. Now, Paul, you've, I, I don't want your son standing on the street uh, waiting to be picked up, so we'll wrap it up there, but uh, perhaps we can get you back again next week. There'll be lots more that we can talk about if you're uh, available, maybe even a little bit earlier, so we don't have the uh, hard out. Yeah, that's fine. I think we could probably talk for hours about some of these products so it's been an absolute pleasure just to um yeah see you guys faces on here instead of listening to you through my my app on the phone on my iphone 12 and <laughs> well I, I do have to say I, I i know that you're often shouting in your uh, speakers when you're a passive listener so thank you for uh, not shouting at us today <laughs> No, I, I I don't shout these days. I'm too old and wise, and, and a little bit and little, a little bit more jaded these days. So it doesn't bother me as much. <laughs> Stick with us. You'll be as jaded as me before you know it. <laughs> Great stuff. Well, Paul Paul Bailey, Ian Watson, uh, thank you very much. That wraps up another week of news. Uh, the show is produced and edited by Joe Helder. We thank Cryer Malt, uh, who are our sponsors this week with Rallings, Label Stickers and Packaging, Bluestone Yeast and Beer Fans for their support in making this episode possible. We'll be back next week with a great chat. Uh, I am speaking with Willie uh, the Boatman's uh, owner, Pat McInerney, talking not about just about the rebrand, but really interesting chat about how hard the industry is for them. Uh, if you want to prepare for that one, uh, three years ago I spoke to Pat um, on Beer's Conversation just at the start of COVID. And he was very upbeat. He was very confident, um, despite COVID being upon us. Um, and suffice it to say, it's a very different story he's uh, telling now. So if you have a bit of time this weekend, maybe go back and listen to that May 2020 podcast in preparation for next week's Beer Conversation. Otherwise, enjoy your weekend. And I hope you find some great beers that don't have sludge at the bottom. Thank you all. <laughs>